Welcome back to The Resilient Responder, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of our first responder and military communities. Here we talk about the job, mental wellness and resiliency, coaching, family, and living our best lives. Now, once again, here is your host, Keith Hanks. All right, folks, welcome back to The Resilient Responder podcast. I am again your host, Keith Hanks. Today, I got a real special guest on today. We're going to have a really good conversation. And uh, given the time of year that it is, this, this is going to be a great episode to follow suit to a certain other uh, event on the calendar. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. My guest today is Bill Gardner, a uh, good friend, uh, former Worcester cop out here in Massachusetts. Um, got ousted for certain reasons we're going to talk about, which is relevant to you know what this, what this podcast stands for. Uh, Bill's a uh, very devoted to making a change in the mental health of first responders. Bill, I'm going to kind of let you take the floor and introduce yourself. And, you know, thanks for being here today. Sure, sure. Thanks, Kenton. Yeah, it's a, a real pleasure and privilege to be here. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, so yeah, going back, um, we're, we're getting ready to come up on Martin Luther King Day, which is now a federal holiday. Thank goodness. Um, That's right. That's in right. In conjunction with uh, Black History Month, which I always like to tell people is not restricted to a month. It's 365 days a year. So uh, hopefully people will take that into account and try to, um, you know, represent uh, Black folks and folks of color all year round. Um, yep. That being said, so to go, you've heard my story, a lot of my story. So um, <laughs> you'll re may remember this. The um, When I was about three years old, um, I, we were living in an apartment building in Newark, New Jersey. Um, I had been born in Glen Ridge, New Jersey. My parents lived in Newark, and we lived in the Colonnade Apartments. The building is still standing to this day. Mm. And once in a while, if I go through Jersey, I uh, fly up there and just drive around the building once and then head back out just to, to check it out and, and, and relive some memories. So one of the things that stands out in my mind is that when I was younger, and my mom was asked by a neighbor upstairs if she could come up and help her prepare a dinner mm. because this woman was having Martin Luther King Jr. coming to her home uh, to, to greet her and her husband. And she just was like beside herself. And so she asked my mom to come up and help her out. Mm. And as the story goes, you know, they got the dinner all prepared. And then they were like, you know, bring um, Bill and Billy upstairs and, uh, you know, let them meet Martin. And this, as the story goes, Martin Luther King was the first person who, when I was introduced to them, I actually reached my hand out to shake his hand. So that was um, a, a very, uh, you know, poignant time in my life. And right. it then correlates then with the, uh, fourth, and, and this was literally weeks before he was assassinated. So it was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was uh, an amazing timing. Um, that being said, that date was April 4th, and um, that happened to be the day that I was officially hired by the city of Worcester and started the Worcester Police Academy. Um, to the day, uh, April 4th, 1994 to April 4, 2004, and I retired um, on that day exactly 10 years later. So it's very prophetic and just keeps popping up. Mm. It's weird how that happens. I've always enjoyed hearing that part of your story, you know, with, with MLK. And I think, you know, given the time of year that it is, that's that's a very important part of, of, of resiliency. And, you know, we've talked about this. I mean, you talk about resiliency a lot. And, um, you know, your story is a very is a very tough one. And 
I think it's important for the for our listeners to hear, you know, a lot of why you, your career ended at 10 years. Sure, sure. No doubt. Um, well, you know, it started right in the police academy. Um, it became literally immediately clear that I just didn't fit in because I tried to solve situations with my head, my heart and with the law. And I didn't feel that breaking the law was appropriate. Uh, for example, there was a case where there was an exam question where we have a, I'm going to have to write this down so I remember the names. We have an arrest warrant for Joe Smith and Joe Smith, we know is in Kevin's house. Do we have the authority to go into Kevin's house and arrest Joe? Well, no, we don't. Short of fresh and continued pursuit. We see uh, Joe on the street and say, hey, Joe, we have a warrant for your arrest. Stop. And he runs into Kevin's house. Then we can do fresh and continued pursuit and head in after him. Or if we get to the door knowing that he's in there, knock and announce, and we hear something like, I'm going to kill you. We can kick the door due to emergent circumstances. And then when we find uh, Joe in there, we can make the arrest. Short of that, we have to just basically surround the perimeter, make sure he doesn't get away, contact a judge, and then get a entry warrant for Kevin's house so that we can then effect the uh, arrest on uh, Joe. Well, you know, when you were young, growing up and, and having tests and exams, you know, that whole after, you know, in the lunchroom or in the locker room where, hey, what'd you get on question two? What'd you get on question 17? And of course, we're doing that. And that question popped up. And somebody was like, yeah, no, we, yeah, we can go in and we can definitely uh, arrest that guy. I said, well, no, we can't. Oh, what do you mean? Well, short of fresh and continued pursuit or emergent circumstances, we cannot go in. We need to get a warrant to enter Kevin's house to effect the arrest on Joe. Ah, you don't know what you're talking about. We're the effing police and we can do anything we want to. Well, sure enough, when the test came back, I was one of the only people to get the question right. Go figure. Another very similar situation, there was a, um, a constitutional, that was criminal law. This is constitutional law. We had a test with a question. It was a fact pattern where we're supposed to read through the fact pattern and then decide whether we uh, had a felony, whether it was an arrestable offense, and a few other prongs. And so um, you're literally going down an alley and you happen to come up upon a factory area and you see a truck broken into and you're working the midnight shift so it's at night so that immediately triggers breaking and entering into a vehicle in the nighttime which just raises the level of the uh the crime and there are vcrs tvs cameras spilled out all over the ground all of a sudden i'm driving down the road and i see two guys walking one holding a vcr and i stop them question them and the the ultimate question is do i have the power and authority to arrest well, all of a sudden, I'm sitting here looking at the vehicle, and then I'm driving down the road. I'm like, no, there's something missing. I mean, it's just, there's something not here. I know where they're going. Is this mm -hmm. going to be a felony value over a certain amount in the nighttime, breaking and entering motor vehicle? That was going to be an immediate arrest. But I didn't have that because I could not connect the person carrying the VCR to the vehicle. And I wrote that into the border of the test and said, based on the information presented, I do not feel that I can come up with the um, reason to arrest on a felony. At a minimum, I have receiving stolen property. 
and only on the guy carrying the VCR. The other guy, there are literally no charges on because you can't equate him to anything. Right. And when that test came back, <laughs> the sergeant actually made a point to say, you know what? We were going to throw this question out. But what because and he explained that because of the technology of the day, the machine that was supposed to print the tests, the pages overlapped. So a section of the fact pattern was missing. He said, but one cadet figured this out and actually wrote a perfect rationale into the, the side of the test as to why he didn't have the power to arrest and what steps he would take. And that cadet is Billy Gardner. And all of a sudden mm. from the back of the room, I heard effing know it all. Mm. And that just that just set the tone right there. You know, for the rest of the time in the academy, um, you know, I was always, you know, the 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 you know butt of somebody's joke. Um, I came from the campus police field. So when everybody would when somebody would have come in and ask, yeah, there are any people previous law enforcement, I'd raise my hand, you'd hear people groan. And then, right. you know, I'd say, yeah, well, I was at WPI campus police and you'd hear teeth sucking all around the room. And it's like, you, you know, you weren't a real police officer. And that just continued to the time we graduated. And by the time we graduated, there were officers on the street who didn't like me and didn't want to work with me because they had heard that I do things the right way and, um, you know, don't want to bend the law or, or do it the way they do on the street. And that, that ended up spilling out into your career. Um, and from what I understand your story, from what I've heard, uh, ended up being sort of the demise of it. And you hear about this a lot. Uh, a lot of people don't quite understand it, but um, there is. And from those of us in the first responder world, there is this sort of expectation. Um, and and I don't, I've never experienced it as a law enforcement officer. I've experienced it from the other end of the spectrum of first responders being working with law enforcement. Um, there is like an expectation that, you know, you're going to bend the law a little bit. You're going to um, not so much take matters in your own hands, but there's wiggle room. And um, unfortunately, because you know, not unfortunately, fortunately for you, because you're 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 a man who who does the right thing. Uh, but unfortunately for your career, this ended up, you know, spelling disaster for you. Oh yeah, no, it was horrible. From the the time I was in the academy through the job in the next ten years, I was blackballed, belittled, name called, um, and working in a toxic work environment for the entire ten years, and I literally broke. Um, it started to really, uh, you know, show signs about three years in and five years. Um, and it was actually the weekend of the Worcester fire mm. uh, that you, um, I know you remember, and a lot of folks here will remember um, where we lost six firefighters. And it was that weekend, it had nothing to do with the fire, but just something clicked in me that weekend. And I just, I said, you know what? I can't do this job anymore. At least I can't do it effectively. And, uh, you know, I had never taken a sick day up to that point, even when I was sick. Right. And now it was like, you know what? I don't feel good today. I'm not coming in. Or, you know what? I feel like crap mentally. I'm not coming in. And, you know, it just got worse and worse and worse to the degree that actually somebody came into my office. It was a, uh, a female detective from the juvenile division. And she said, you know what? There's no harm. There's no shame in asking for help. And mm. this came out of the blue. Like she had been watching me and seeing me and just realizing what condition I was in. And she said, you know, just go, go ask for help. And I did. And that started what has now become about 22 years of therapy and medication. And, um, 
you know, although it's probably helped a little bit, it's been 20 years. And to be honest, I don't even know if any of that is working anymore. You know, if I went off the meds gradually for the next few weeks and was completely off of them, would I revert back? Would I not? Would I actually feel a lot better? I have no idea. Um, but it's just, it's been a drag because literally I, I, I suffer from depression, hyper-anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and now obsessive compulsive behavior. And mm -hmm. it really just takes away from my day-to-day in -day my life. And to be honest with you, um, as I've maybe told you before, I just, I don't, I don't enjoy life anymore. Mm -hmm. I really, I don't. And it's not to the degree that, yeah, I'm going to, you know, do harm to myself tonight, but I don't enjoy life. Like every day for me, I look forward to eating. So like, oh, you know, we're going to make a, you know, a bagel sandwich for breakfast. I'm going to make grits and I'm going to have, you know, coffee with it. And that's going to be awesome. And as soon as I'm done, the depression comes flowing right back. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have lunch at about one o'clock. That'll, yeah, that'll be good. You know, and then mm -hmm. it goes away again. And then it's like, well, what are we having for dinner? I want to make, you know, fried rice tonight. All right. that's And then when I'm done eating, it just, it all comes flooding back. And um, not that it even goes away completely, but at least it's like, I'm enjoying myself right, right. now because I'm having a meal. And there are a few other things. Like I listen to music like constantly. You will almost never um, see me not listening <laughs> to music unless I'm doing something like this. There's this is music playing all the time. When I'm riding my Harley, which is another thing that I, you know, use to try to keep the, the bump and uglies away. Um, you know, I'm a photographer by trade. So I try to do as much photography as I can. And those things used to work to the degree that for at least a good few hours, I would be like, all right, this feels good. I'm having a good time and the anxiety would go away. And now it's just ever present. All that being said, it's just been a rough. So I, I just turned 57. So, and I uh, joined the police department at 28. So literally half my life, I have been either working in a toxic work environment or developing and now completely seated in depression, hyper anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and OCD. And I just, I literally, you know, don't enjoy life. So it's a struggle every day and something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And I just, I wish that the law enforcement uh, culture would understand that you don't have to go to DEFCON 1 every time you come up against somebody who you ultimately are having a disagreement with or having to deal with and you mm. put it up there, you break the switch and you never come down. And, you know, anybody who's ever been on the other end of a tongue lashing knows that does not feel good. No. So as a police officer showing up on a scene and somebody's already having a bad day to incite that to the degree that now this person is acting out even more if, if they were acting out before or not. Um, and then you keep ramping them up and then all of a sudden you've got, a bogus charge for me it's a bogus charge of disturbing the peace oh well while you were yelling and screaming that person looked out the window and that one came out the door to see what was going on that was enough to trigger the disturbing the peace arrest and that right. person would get arrested when it was absolutely unnecessary and those were the kinds of things that i refused to do and then for 10 years was just you know beaten up for it and um I just, I just didn't last. I broke probably. Oh, and that's where I was going with this. Um, five <laughs> years in, I just, I couldn't deal with it anymore. And it just got worse and worse and worse um, until there was an incident. I had an argument with somebody in the on the job and uh, had to write a report on it. And I, I expressed the fact that, listen, I'm struggling emotionally and have been asking for help for years through our stress officer, through the department. 
Um, nobody's listening and nobody's done anything for me. And, uh, you know, I want to have that addressed. And that's the, that's where this argument came from, came mm-hmm. out of. And they took that as, well, he's a danger to himself and others. And they put me on administrative leave and got rid of me. Mm-hmm. It's a long story after that. But literally, you know, on April 4th, 2004, I was forced to retire on my own because as I passed a state medical panel that said, can he do the job anymore? Is it reversible? And was it responsibility of the job? I got eight affirmatives out of nine. And typically in Massachusetts, if you get six out of nine, you get your disability retirement, which is 72%. I got eight out of nine and they refused to honor it. Between the union lawyer and the city, I think I was tricked into signing this, uh, this retirement agreement. The union lawyer says, okay, now you're no longer a member of the bargaining unit. We can fight for your 72%, but now you have to pay me out of pocket. And he wanted a $2,500 retainer was going to charge me $250 an hour, which now because I'm making just under $1,000 a month, I couldn't afford. And it's just gone down the hill ever since. Right. And this is, um, you know, one of the main reasons beyond, you know, you being my bud, um, one of the main reasons I want to have you on, this is a very common story. And it's a common story in the sense that it happens a lot. It's not a common story in the fact that it's shared a lot. And, um, you know, whether it's being being good at your job, the way you look, or whatever it is, this sort of treatment and this sort of um, outcome, if you will, uh, it does happen a lot. And, you know, with, uh, with my story... Um, because I had reached out, I had started showing signs of, you know, ultimately what was PTSD. Uh, my career was definitely also cut short. Um, and it wasn't obviously to the degree of treatment that you went through, but this sort of, you know, hey, this person's showing weakness. Hey, this person isn't um, falling in line with everyone else. Hey, this person's causing ripples uh, because, you know, they need this or that, the other thing. Uh, this sort of story actually happens quite a bit. And, um, a lot of us out there, and and I know Bill can attest to this. When you talk to people, when you network with people uh, in this field, especially those who have left the field um, due to mental health um, issues or, or or whatever diagnosis, um, this this ends up being part of the story, and it's it, it's it's called administrative betrayal, and it's completely unacceptable. And I always find it intriguing. Uh, when me and Bill talk, uh, you know, we, we both know each other's stories, you know, pretty intimately. And it's, it's a very common, common thread. And that's why, you know, we're talking about this today. And so to kind of build off this, um, what I want to talk about is, is sort of, and it's tough, because I know, I know that you, you struggle with a lot of your symptoms with, you know, the anxiety and whatnot, but, you know, you're here. And, you know, you're on the show and you're, and you're sharing that. And that, to me, that shows resiliency. And so uh, in a few minutes, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that resiliency. Um, but real quick, we're just going to take a, a quick commercial break for a, a word from our sponsor, First Responder Coaching.
Coaching is here now for all first responders and their families. When it comes to the job and the stresses that come with it, we at First Responder Coaching know exactly how it can affect every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. That's because we are first responders and their families. First responders are well-versed in reacting to a situation. It is literally what we do as firefighters, law enforcement, dispatch, and EMS personnel. When trauma enters our lives, we react to it by tucking it down away somewhere in our minds, but we carry it with us and never really goes away. We need to stop carrying trauma into every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's time to start having proactive, powerful conversations right now to gain a better balance in the responder's whole life. This is true for their families, especially the spouses. Take that first step in making some of the most important improvements in your life. Visit www.1strespondercoaching.org now to make an appointment to chat with FRC. A coach will reach out, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to living a proactively fit lifestyle. All right, folks, and we're back with Bill Gardner, uh, former Worcester PD, um, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about resiliency here. And because as much as I know, at times, uh, Bill doesn't see it. Um, or may not be able to hold on to it. Uh, there is a story of resiliency here, and um, I want I want to talk about that for a bit. So, so Bill, what you went through, um, all of it, uh, is a very traumatic situation for sure. And uh, the fact that you're you're getting up every day is, is is something of inspiration to our listeners. And I know there's people out there right now uh, listening, watching this this episode who will be like, well, holy shit, you know, if this guy, if this guy did it, you know, I can do it. Or, uh, you know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you know, make similarities and, 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 uh, comparisons and, and be like, holy crap, I, I can, I can do it. You know, it's, it's one of those situations where, okay, it's gone. You, you really loved being a cop. Mm. And, and I do have a point to where I'm going with this. Um, I loved being, doing what I did as a firefighter and EMT. And when I couldn't do it anymore, uh, I sort of lost that, that identity. Um, and what I always try to get my guests to talk about is, did you fall into the trap of being identified by your badge, by the uniform? Ooh, that's interesting. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to answer that. The one thing that pops into my head, <laughs> and I, I took full advantage of this, um, like a lot of cops wouldn't go home in uniform. They'd come in civvies, get dressed in uniform, get out of the uniform, go home in civvies because they didn't want to be identified as a police officer. Uh, I kept my uniform on going, coming and everything in between because it did bring you a level of not necessarily respect, but people would automatically listen to you. Like if you mm. go into a place asking for something or asking for a favor, oh, who are you? But if you come in in uniform, officer, what can I do for you? And I literally took advantage of that to, you know, make relationships with people around the city, agencies around the city, um, anyone who I thought could help me do my job better. Um, for example, and this is another great little story that maybe you've heard a piece of, mm. um, the right around the time that I got on the job, there was a uh, disturbance downtown at City Hall. And City Hall was the central location where all buses ultimately came to and then went off to go on their different routes. So at the end of the day, at the end of the school day, there were always a lot of teens uh, around the uh, City Hall area waiting for their buses to go where they needed to go. 
And every once in a while, that turned into somebody, you know, disturbing the peace or getting into a scuffle with each other or whatever. And so the police would come down and ultimately, you know, harass these kids and, you know, coming down and, and trying to get orders, one thing. But when you're coming down and it's like, you know, get off of this corner, get out of here. Somebody's getting arrested and, and just yelling, screaming at people. That's not the way to do it. And so multiple different incidents happened to a point where a couple of people in the city got together and corralled these kids. And actually, in the basement of City Hall is where it started. They just created these, you know, weekly and then ultimately almost daily times where kids could get together, be together, um, get some, you know, coaching, life skills, uh, other things like that, and just be with somebody who cared about them. And that eventually turned into the Worcester Youth Center, which was basically a um, you know social service agency and drop-in center for Black, Brown, um, and other kids, primarily Black, Brown, and Asian kids, um, who typically were poor, um, maybe gang-related, uh, other things like that. And so they typically just didn't have a place to go. And so the Worcester Youth Center turned into a spot for them to... Um, to go and go farther and there was an incident where kids are out in front of the youth center which is still on main street down from city hall and somebody called and complained that they're blocking the sidewalk or something like that police hmm. show up and it all of a sudden turns into an issue where voices are being raised and there happened to be board members in the building at the time having a meeting and so folks went rushing out the executive director uh, one of his workers and another person who I don't even know what their position was at the time, but the three of them went out to try to get between the cops and the kids and calm the situation down. And ultimately they were pepper sprayed and mm. arrested. And that just turned into a, you know, an ignition that just lighted this extreme hate for the Worcester Youth Center. By the time I got on the job, you know, all around the building was those effing kids and, you know, those comments that aren't necessarily the N-word or the S-word, the SP word for Spanish. Right. But it was those undertones that you could tell. Like, you know, these people hate these kids. Yeah. So about three years in, I end up on the uh, bicycle patrol. And I was working in the what we call the Main South area, which is a, a pretty poor area and um, has, unfortunately has a, a high level of crime. And I was on the way back. And I was going to ride right by the youth center. So I said, let me stop in. And I took my, rolled my bike in, parked and said, hey, you know, my name is Bill Gardner, Officer Gardner. And I just wanted to let you know that, uh, you know, I support you guys. And uh, if there's anything I can do, you know, let me know. And the um, executive director, Adolfo Arastia, never forget Adolfo. He hmm. led me around the center real quick, showed me, you know, showed me there's a DJ booth. Here's where we have parties. Here's the education center. Here's where kids can go and hang out and play like the younger kids. And he said, you know what? Why don't you come back another time? And I know he's like, he's unsure of me. <laughs> right, right. He wondered what's <laughs> going on. And he wants to find out who I am. So I said, all right, no, no problem. And I showed up the next day, 24 hours later. And he's like, you're serious, aren't you? And he said, all right, you know, and that just turned into me dropping in just like the kids all the time. Mm. And I built relationships with the staff. I built relationships with the kids. And this was around August. By October, I was invited to be on their board of directors. Mm. And I did that job for four years or was on the board of directors for four years. And um, 
it turned into me being called a gang leader in the department. And, you know, why are you hanging around with those effing kids? And, you know, I tried to create a diversion program where we could get, say, 12 kids, uh, three per officer with four officers from the bike patrol to work with the kids for an hour on some education about health, fitness, good drugs, bad drugs, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. And then for an hour, they get to work out in our gym get a baseline and over that 12 week period, improve their their physical fitness. And when certain people in the department caught wind of that, there was yelling and screaming at me like you wouldn't believe to the degree that we, I actually got called into the chief's office and asked, what, who, who do I think I am and what do I think I'm doing? And obviously the, the program never got off, um, you know, jumped up, but that's what has now become um, diversion programs, you know, through the district attorney's office and through the police department to some degree, uh, and other social services agencies in the uh, in the area. And, you know, it was, it's cutting edge now. And so um, those kinds of things I was doing and just wasn't appreciated for. And again, that just contributed to the, uh, the bad feelings that I was having. Right. And it was a it was a downward spiral. And, you know, for for our listeners that don't know, Worcester is a uh, one of the biggest. It's, I believe the second biggest city in Massachusetts. It's just under two hundred thousand people. It's uh, literally the in the heart of Massachusetts center, dead center of Massachusetts. Um, it was about thirty five minutes from where I grew up. Uh, I also worked EMS in Worcester, not during the same time Bill was there. Um, but it's a very it's an inner city, and there's there's a lot of crime, uh, the uh, a lot of diversity, a lot of different cultures. Um, and it's one of those, one of those cities that has a department that is sort of known, um, for having a strong arm. And one of the things me and Bill always talk about, uh, and a lot of our listeners will appreciate, and I know some of our listeners also, uh, hold near and dear is how in the first responder world, we're always taught those dials got to be up. They got to be up. They got, you got to be operating on a 10 that I, I was taught that in the Academy. I was never taught how to turn back down though. And I was never taught, um, you know, how I was going to process what I saw. And for me, me, I know um, there was a strong belief that um, a lot of what we're seeing is is an insecurity thing. It's a lack of self-confidence. It's uh, actually um, subdued fear and, and being scared that's coming across as anger and violence uh, when it comes to a lot of what we're seeing, um, specifically in law enforcement. But society the first responder or whatever you want to say um when it comes to these situations that you know oftentimes you know make the news and one of the things that you know me and bill have connected on is trying to figure out a way to bring that to light you know most people know that i devote myself to you know bringing about a a change in the mental health of first responders and part of that is for this reason and as much as we we see the news and we you know we only see bad stories there is a lot of good that happens, but we're also not seeing how this gets carried home. And a lot of this gets brought home to our spouses, our children, our families. And, uh, you know, for me and Bill, we're, we're so devoted to trying to change that. Bill, what, what are your, what are your thoughts when it comes to, you know, now that we're in 2023, whole nother year, right? And um, what, what are your thoughts when it comes to like the stigma and the changes that are very slowly happening with mental health for first responders. What do you what do you think that that currently looks like? Do you think it's on the upswing? Do you think it's plateauing? Wow. Um, 
you know, there are definitely people who are finally standing up and recognizing certain things. I mean, between police brutality, certainly when COVID hit, which I think was perfect because the perfect arrival, because it kept everybody in one place. And when George Floyd, the George Floyd murder happened, as well as um, Ahmaud Aubrey and the other young lady who was a paramedic, I believe she was a paramedic, um, was killed. Everybody had to watch. And especially mm. that video of George Floyd being killed over and over and over again. And for the first time, because we've had, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin and all these other folks, Michael Brown, um, who've been killed over the years. But this was the first one that for a, a good, I think it was, well, eight plus minutes was just constantly recording that entire incident. Mm. And it was just, I mean, you could not look at that video and say, yeah, he deserved it. There's just right. no way. And so finally, people were recognizing, one, what I say is, uh, you know, police brutality. And I think it's unfortunately a very large part of police culture in this country. So also, while there's being an awareness of police brutality and things like that, I think these people who are now getting involved with that are starting to see that there are chinks in the armor and that, you know, as much as like, so the police brutality thing or the police who end up, um, you know, getting involved in killing people who were calls for assistance, like mm -hmm. somebody with mental health issues or something along those lines. Um, the immediate need to jerk reaction was, you know, well, let's send social workers in there, mm -hmm. um, which is a point I love to bring up because no, that's the worst idea you could ever have come up with. Having a social worker be on the scene is one thing, but having a dispatcher have to make a decision based on a call about whether, oh, this sounds pretty innocuous, so let's just send a social worker. <laughs> right. And then yeah. social worker show up, and all of a sudden, it does get out of control, and the, the social worker is faced with you know being injured or losing their life. Mm -hmm. It has to be a concerted effort. It has to be, okay, one, we need to train police officers to be a little more open-minded about being human and treating that person as a human being while keeping themselves safe, making sure the situation is safe, the scene is safe, and then letting the social worker come in and do what they have to do. Um, I'll go even so far as to say we should be hiring from pools of people who have gotten psychology degrees, gotten sociology degrees, gotten other different related degrees, so that now they are a little more in tune with people and the and human nature and are that much more effective with those tools combined with the law enforcement tools to actually bring much more positive resolutions um, with interactions with the public. And along the way, people have slowly but surely, I know in my conversations with people, people are, are becoming slightly more aware of the fact that that machismo that's in the police department and we need to be at 10 or 11 all the time, um, that kind of thing, which I don't think is necessary. I think it's it's possible to go into a scene that is highly volatile, get it under control, and then bring everybody down. And you don't have to be swearing, cursing at people, throwing people down flights of stairs, you know, all that other stuff that does happen um, to get the job done. Right. Um, and so I think these folks are finally realizing that, you know what, we need to change the culture and we need to help officers, paramedics, and firefighters, for that matter, um, who do show up on the scenes that are, are are grisly. You know, we're we're always in conflict as police officers, 
uh, paramedics are constantly, and after hearing some of your stories, I'm like, wow, you know, hmm. I, I kind of saw that, but I didn't envision some of the things. You know, you're dealing with death all the time and people in their worst, you know, bodily fluids and severe injuries and and firefighters burnt bodies and things like that. There's no way you can tell me that even the toughest person in the world isn't coming out of a situation like that, feeling a little less than themselves. And you, when you do that every day and then have these incidents that are pretty severe happening on a regular basis, um, especially in your, your larger departments, um, that takes a toll. And yep. we need to stop with the machismo, stop with the bravado, and start asking people, you know what, what can I do for you? You know, how are you feeling after that call? You know what, let's, let's get off the road for a minute and let's talk. And, and the most important thing in which, unfortunately, was what happened to me is I expressed that I needed help and they turned that into, well, this is going to be a way for us to get rid of him. Right. And that should, on the very first thing that they should do when we're starting to build this more awareness and education around supporting our first responders is that when somebody steps up and says they need help or showing signs of, of needing help, that that isn't an automatic ticket to them getting off the job. The, the right. opposite, the, the department, the, the town or the city or the state should get together and say, what can we do to this officer, firefighter, paramedic? to get them back in good shape again and get them back on the job as opposed to just getting rid of them. Right. And, and that's an important piece and something that I, you know, I, I'm a fairly young guy. I mean, I'm 44, but in the school of uh, the first responder world, I, I'm a bit old school where, you know, I got on 26 years ago and I've seen the change from the nineties uh, getting on in 96, seeing, uh, critical incident stress being these being held like, hey, you guys want to share your feelings? And no one, especially considering we were all men mainly, um, being like, oh, fuck that. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not, sharing, I'm not sharing my feelings to now people being able to reach out. And I think a lot of the, the still remaining disconnect is some of the, um, be it older school, be it maybe even younger folks that grew up in an older school mentality, that generational thing. Um, there's still some of those around that that aren't supportive of it. So the the connect between needing help, getting support, and being supportive isn't always there. But there's a definite transition I've seen um, over the last, it will say five to seven years, um, with this. And honestly, uh, you know, to to kind of segue into a different part here, that this brings us to uh, you know some of the more culturally competent resources that have popped up, and one of those is a program at McLean's leader that developed after the Boston Marathon bombing. And um, I, I hold this this timeline for a reason. I know so many people, myself included, who 2015, I know the marathon was before that, uh, was with when I got real help. And I know like seven other men who that year was their year. And mm -hmm. since, so that's that timeline, that five to seven year, where I know I understand it's 2023, but uh, it's only the first month, so it doesn't count. Um, you know, we're in that five to seven year window where things are really starting to change. And all of this comes back to mental health and this demand for men and women, but specifically men, because all the first responder pillars here, dispatch, EMS, police, fire, um, and even the military, it was always male dominated. And we were always expected to hide our emotions, hide our feelings, be mm -hmm. on a 10 all the time, never let anything affect us. I was born and raised that way before I even got a badge. And that carried into the job and it nearly killed me 
mm-hmm. and it nearly killed other people we know and it's still killing people and it tri- if it doesn't kill them it creates an angry person and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you're a man or a woman I've worked in all sorts of cities. I know Bill can appreciate this all over Massachusetts. And it doesn't matter if it's a man or woman. There are angry people who are who are taking out their traumas and their anguish and their their sadness and fears out through their job. Mm-hmm. And it's not just law enforcement. It's it's fire. It's EMS. It's even dispatch. I've heard some horrible stories of dispatch supervisors literally getting their their best supervisors, uh, their best dispatchers to quit. Um, and a lot of this, it all comes back to somehow comes back to mental health. And, you know, one of the reasons I brought Bill on is because his story is very, very powerful, very powerful. And in, in several ways, it is unique. However, it does share common ground with a lot of us uh, from the first responder world. And, um, you know, Bill, you know, these days, you know, as you said, you still you still have your struggles. A lot of this is stemmed out of what you went through. Um but, you know, I'd have to say that, you know, my interactions with you uh, show that you you are making an effort. You are putting one foot in front of the other. Do you do you see that? Do you see that there is there is hope? Yeah, no, I um, I, it's it's one of those. I've always been a person who always <clears throat> helped the underdog. You know, for mm-hmm. example, the, the first time that I really remember it was um when I was uh, in high school uh, at Worcester Academy and I was a senior, um, Worcester Academy at the time really had no delineation between junior high and high school. You came in at seventh grade and you got out at 12th grade and there was really no separation in between. And so we had a bunch of, uh, you know, seventh graders and um, uh, pre-freshmen, we called them. And those kids, because of their age, and because of their size, would get picked on relentlessly by certain older kids at the school, even at an academy. Mm. And um, I took those kids under my wing. I would sit, we had a building called the Megaron where we would go and be able to, it was kind of like a, there's no education, no eating, no anything else. Just this is a place for us to hang. And so you'd be in the Megaron studying, doing whatever, maybe socializing. And those kids would end up in there and I would sit with them and talk with them and hang out with them. And eventually they became my little crew. Like literally Mm. they appreciated the fact that me, a senior actually talked with them and looked at them as though they were part of the crew and wasn't throwing their book bag on the roof of the gym or whatever, <laughs> stuffing them into a trash can like right. people would do. Um, and that just continued through my life. And so now, you know, I was a member of the Central Mass Critical Incident Stress Team. You talked about CIS a little bit ago. Uh, and that was, again, a, a very, it made me feel good to be able to go into a room with a bunch of you know first responders who responded to a very heinous um, call and have gotten out and are are showing chinks in their armor and you know to get them to talk about their experience leading up to the incident, talk about their experience living the incident, and then what happened to them after the incident, and getting everybody to just be able to share if they want to what happened. All of a sudden, everyone around the rooms, you know, if anybody was apprehensive about talking, well, Joe talked or Kevin talked or Sally right. talked. Yep. All right, maybe I'll share my story. And as you go around the room three times, that builds and builds and builds to the degree that everybody says, well, you know what? I'm not alone in this. And certainly the, you know, the police, fire, paramedics, and clin- clinicians who create CIS teams get it. Um, places like McLean get it. 
Uh, the on-site academy where I actually stayed three days for a triple I once when I just, I couldn't handle the job anymore, needed to get away. Yep. Um, those people get it. And I think slowly but surely, we're starting to bring that same message out into the public to the degree that now the public is saying, yeah, we want to, we want to make, you know, get more of this into, um, into these different departments and um, different careers and make sure that our people are taken care of. Yeah. And that's clutch. And that, and that the way I, I sort of asked that question was done purposely um, because I, it kind of wraps back to um, my question earlier about identity and purpose. And a lot of us on the job definitely um, identify ourselves by the job. And that was sort of what I was getting at earlier. And um, I know I did. And it took me years before I really realized who I was underneath the uniform. And you just define that uh, by saying what you just said and that you truly are someone who does help the underdog, someone who does truly stand their ground and their beliefs. And that's, those sort of things are what really make us who we are. It's not what we may be capable of on the job. We're capable of doing what we can on the job because who we really are. And mm -hmm. that may be because of what we went through, um, our upbringing. It could be generationally. It could just be who, that we're good people, but a lot of people get caught up with, um, identity and purpose being, um, because of that badge mm -hmm. and uh i really i really appreciate you kind of wrapping that in with what you just said it was, it was perfect you you just you literally uh said exactly what I, I knew you were gonna say but um <laughs> definitely what uh i think our our listeners needed to hear um but this uh this is this has been an incredible you know conversation i think you know those who know me and bill um when we talk we could talk for hours we've literally lost track of half a day in the past and um uh we will, we're gonna probably have bill come back on because there's a lot more a lot more uh mm -hmm. that we could we could talk about uh, but we are we are running out of time so what i always ask people and uh this might be uh i'd be interested to see what you say i always ask people at the end of each episode and i've been asked this when i go on podcasts is knowing what you know now would you do the job over again? Man. Yeah, I know. I've been asked that question a lot. And um, my initial response to that question was, nope, I would have turned left instead of turning right. Mm. But at the end of the day, um, I really did enjoy that job. I, and I miss it. I miss it to this day. There are, are, are people that I was able to help, um, people that I was able to support and assist and just make their lives better because of um, the way that I just am as a person, as a human being. And I miss that part of the job. Um, to add back to what you, it, it finally clicked what you had asked earlier. And no, I wasn't identified by my badge and my uniform. I would use it to my advantage. But when I got home, you know, that came off and I just tried to be the, you know, best Bill Gardner that I could be. And, um, you know, didn't, I didn't even hang out with cops, you know, maybe some of our black and brown cops, because we kind of had to stick together to, you know, overcome some of the stuff that we were dealing with individually and as a group. Um, but in general, I didn't hang out with police because I just didn't like the culture. Mm. So I, I really kind of put that police officer aside um, when I was on the job. I was always very attentive and supportive of people, even in, in civilian situations, um, but you know, that real police officer, uh, and the badge just disappeared. Um, but yeah, no, now, now I think that knowing everything that I know, I would have, 
probably still become a police officer, but I would have kept my mouth shut and just done my thing and and just and and immediately gone for for rank. Take mm-hmm. the sergeant's exam, take the lieutenant's exam, take the captain's exam, and become an official and eventually be able to get my people at least under me to behave in the same or a similar way. Um and if that just meant being, you know, a closet case for years and just, you know, doing my job and not necessarily speaking out or whatever, then maybe that's just what I needed to do to protect myself and would do if I had to do that all over again. Um, but definitely, I, I, I miss the job. Mm-hmm. I miss the job and I miss being able to help people and um, the relationships that I built with people, you know, because of the uniform. And it just, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to let go of that. It really is. And I just want to reiterate that uh, you are still helping people. Uh, you are helping people even when you don't realize it. You are also helping yourself uh, through healing. And um, I, I always like hearing what people say. And for the most part, uh, it's always some version of, yes, I would do it again. And that's, I think, just defines who we are as humans beyond our position in whatever job we did. And so I, I appreciate your answer, Bill. And I appreciate you, too. Thank you, man. Appreciate you too, brother. So this, uh, this is again, this has been a, a great conversation, and uh, we're gonna re- we're gonna definitely be bringing Bill back on, um, just because it would, the conversations we can go is just uh, hours, hours, and um, so you know, folks, uh, you know, stay tuned for more more upcoming episodes as we go forward. Um, we are setting up the feed to get this on all your favorite podcast forums. Uh, like, share, subscribe. And if you're interested in coming on the podcast, uh, shoot me an email at keithh at 1strespondercoaching.org. And we can set up an interview and have you come on and share your opinions like Bill did here. So Bill, thanks again. Uh, Any closing thoughts before we uh, leave the episode tonight? I just want um, to say peace, take care of yourself and uh, be safe out there to all my brothers and sisters in, uh, in the first responder services. Awesome, brother. Awesome. All right, folks. Have a good night. Be safe, like Bill said. And stay tuned for for more good stuff coming up. Much love.